pay any money because as in the film industry, everyone does everything for free. Uh, making lesbian vampire killers, it was wrapped up in a bad time of his life. Yeah, it did grate me a bit, smashing down because it feels like, you know, he's, he's bullying the little kid. Today on the Engaging Marketeer podcast, I'm going to be talking to uh, an old friend of mine who I've not seen uh, or, or spoken to uh, in person for for many, many years. He's somebody I went to film school with back in 1990. I don't really want to say exactly how long ago that was because it makes me feel even older. Uh, but we went to film school in Newport with Phil Clayton. Phil is a film director and is most noted for the film with James Corden and Matthew Horne, Lesbian Vampire Killers. But Phil is is so much more than that. Phil is an extremely passionate man, re- extremely passionate man when it comes to, to movies. He knows so much about films, so much about script writing, so much about the, the process of actually making film that just, just speaking to him, you can see his excitement come through. And I, I remember having conversations with Phil back in university, back in the, the mid to late 90s, and you just knew that he was going to make it. You just knew that Phil was going to be the one, if anyone from our, our film course, who was actually going to go on and become become a film director. So with, with, with slight jealousy, slight jealousy, I'm going to be interviewing Phil uh, about making his film Lesbian Vampire Killers, about making the film Alone, which was his, his first big horror movie that he made, um, working with James Corden, working with Miriam Margulies, and we're going to see some tips from Phil. He's going to talk about what it is that you need to do to be successful in film, what it is that you need to do if you want to be a film script writer, if you want to be a film director, if you just want to get out there and get films made. Phil is the person to speak to. Yes, get into it. All right. Um, so obviously, I, I've, I first met you, I think, when we were when we were both 18, 19 years old, I think it was. As, as, as you say, we looked exactly the same back then. We looked the same, definitely. No, no difference when we were both in the uh, University of Wales College Newport or Newport Film School. Um, I I didn't know at the time, but I, I read you put on Twitter recently that you you got into that film school after a big rant you had in your interview over Jaws and Spielberg not getting an Oscar. It's basically was well, obviously I was rejected from the course. I couldn't get into film school for love nor money. Seriously, I was trying from back yeah from about the age of sixteen. Uh, I was like right into say the National Film School sending them stuff or International Film School and like various universities they'll be like you're too young come back <laughs> and then obviously as you go through sort of doing a levels and staying at school then i kind of was applying to yeah universities with like bournemouth all the ones that had sort of good film courses newport obviously was a good one good film school down there so uh i think first round first year i got kind of rejected everywhere second year rejected everywhere so i was like ah oh, what can i do so uh i had to go around the back door which i think is what most of the film industry is about really which is like what are other ways to do this because i'm everyone's going to say no so uh no for an answer because that's the only way to get anything done so uh um when it was like the same department down at the uh, uh university of wales newport and it was like cultural media studies something i would have no interest in whatsoever <laughs> so i applied to that because there was like spaces on that course but you have to go down for like the interview so uh, I got in for like an interview there. So I went down and uh, met up with uh, Mike Punt, who, as we know, and met through the film school, was majorly into film theory, lovely guy, very enthusiastic, yeah. and came up with some crazy wild things about pretty women and stuff. <laughs> but um, 
<laughs> so I got down there and, and basically in a nutshell, spent an hour and a half talking to him about, uh, I don't want to do this course. I want to be on a film course and this is what I've done and this is what I want to do. And, uh, then we got into the topic of Jaws, explaining why I think Jaws was the perfect film that in actual fact, if you watch Jaws, you probably don't need a film school because everything is in there, every shot, the way it's done. Mm. Uh, and the fact is that Steven Spielberg should have won the Academy Award because I don't even know who got the Academy Award that year because that is the uh, you know perfectly edited film, perfectly directed film, perfectly scored film, and uh, went on into much detail and a lot of specifics. And anyway, I think I exhausted him, and or he had to go and get tea or something because he's he ran off and then he came flying back and he says, "I feel like a used car salesman, but uh, I'm gonna it's oversubscribed, but I'm gonna put you on the film." film course and that was that so first day where we all met each other i was the uh i was the reprobate kid who'd come in <laughs> just plugged your way in <laughs> come in from uh, yeah come in on a complete other course and then there uh, which is quite weird isn't it Cause you meet a lot of people who are on a film course who have kind of like you know they just do photography or they want to do film and thought oh i do photography so i'll i'll do movies and you find that not you think everybody's going to be a massive film enthusiast doing yeah. film and you know, there's obviously yourselves and you others who are there, but a lot of them were like, eh, it sounds a good idea. I think I'll do it. God, I, I was actually on it. I was really wanting to do animation at the time, not film. Just to make you feel even worse. So, yeah, I, I wasn't even meant to be doing film <laughs> in the first place. But I remember, I remember you were there and I remember you were big into making spoofs, which I, <laughs> I wholeheartedly I believed was fine. Unfortunately, it was like the dynamic of the school, film school at the time, there very based on genre and anti-genre and anything that was anti-narrative so they, they kept throwing didn't they sort of um anti-narrative and uh, experimental cinema as and we're yeah. you know we're quite in you know spoof movies and uh, horror movies and <laughs> spielberg movies yeah they make, they're making us watch a lot, with, so, yeah. a lot of jean-luc goddard when uh what we really wanted was a bit of leslie nielsen yeah, basically, it was like, can we do Naked Gun for 83 and a third? Can we do Airplane? Can we do Jaws 3 people, Neil? You know, those. Well, you, you, you mentioned, you mentioned, so the, you mentioned the spoofs, fell on. Yeah, I, I did make a lot of spoofs when I was sort of like 16, 17, or maybe as early as 15. So got my mum's VHSC camcorder and just went out into the woods and started making crap like uh, Batman spoof and uh, Robocop and aliens with a cardboard alien suit. Absolutely bloody terrible. But uh, what what sort of stuff were you doing at that early age to get you into this? You know, I think I was just making uh, sort of films with my mates, kind of like, you know, like tea, with crazy like teenage rebels and myths and legends. And, you know, most of them were kind of like, I've probably starting, probably have like, you know, the opening and a bit of a middle and then get bored and move on to something else that I wanted to shoot. And so it was kind of like that. It was like you, it was very much just had a sort of VHS camera and then moved to kind of high A camera and it's just kind of like shooting off the wall stuff. I remember like writing a lot of things, kind of writing screenplays, handwritten that were probably awful and terrible right now that, you know, sort of, and drawing posters based on movies that were basically rip-offs of other movies that you've got to do, you know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. kind of like, like if I was going to rip off Jaws, it would be called Giant Finn and then later obviously... <laughs> write a children's book about that <laughs> it's kind of like oh what can i do 
I need to do a Freddy Krueger ripoff and I'm in Elm Street. Okay, I need to say, maybe horror high. Let's do that. So I begin to like drawing posters, writing scripts that no, I think. I remember writing a script for just before film school called Strain, which was like during a time of like yeah, rave music and everybody seemed to be dying from taking ecstasy. So it was like, oh man, illegal ecstasy turns out loads of ravers into zombies and stuff, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Which is, uh, which as a pitch is amazing, but I think as a script was absolutely awful <laughs> on every level. So you kind of like, you know, you just, you just start experimenting and doing this thing because you're finding your voice. That's what it is about. It's, it's about, it's okay. There's a, uh, you start off kind of mimicking and then you start off going, what well, actually do you want to talk about? What's that? What, you know, the stuff that I actually started making at film school was kind of experimental and things like, yeah, uh, like I think the first film I did was, um, tickled to death, which was based on a nightmare. My first nightmare, I was like tickled to death and it was like <laughs> terrifying. It was like, how do I recreate that? And I think it was just like of screaming babies and hands and stuff. I remember Alan Niblo, the tutor at the time, was very excited by it. <laughs> Because it was like my first film was kind of like a short narrative about an alcoholic redemption story, which starred my dad, which was just a very straightforward kind of like man overcoming alcoholism, which, yeah, you know, they weren't interested in. And then something experimental with like loads of screaming babies and hands and weirdness going on. Mm. That was the ticket. <laughs> so what what other, other memories do you have of film schools? I, I remember it as being quite chaotic and not a lot getting done to be honest with you, by, by most people, including me. I think I think we entered, uh, we would have probably the right people at the wrong time, weren't we? Because we came in and we shifted from Newport and they went out to that new campus. In and I think we spent, yeah, the whole, that whole second year was a wipeout. I don't really remember doing much because, you know, the store wasn't open to rent stuff. I don't think there was any avid machines in there. It was just, no. you know, I think no, they, students they, were protesting. They got all the digital edit suites the literally like two months after we graduated. Yeah, it was just the whole thing was a kind of uh, a complete and a mess. And I think there was a lot of, um, I think the tutors were shifting when I think Alan Niblo was definitely into big moving across to producing and doing human traffic, which was kind of like a big effort, wasn't it? I think in our second, was that shot in our second year and everyone was kind of... Uh, it was shot, in our, it was shot in our third year because my graduation film had one of the actors in it and I had to move a shooting yeah. date because he was in human traffic. So it was definitely third year. It was very annoying, very inconvenient. I know. It was, so the whole, yeah, the whole thing kind of... Uh, remember that was going on and uh, it was like getting anything done was... I don't remember kind of... I think it was just the fact that we had access to equipment. I think that was the main thing. Like now you wouldn't need it. But yeah. then film school was really about the access to equipment, wasn't it? it was the, you could go and get stuff done because this stuff was expensive any other way. Yeah. And and now, you know, you can do it on your phone or, you know, where, you know digital cameras are, are cheap and the whole system to get your hands on stuff, your, your editing suite is on your, on your MacBook and, yeah. you know, anything. So it's a complete completely different setup yeah I've, I've got a drone now and back then you needed a helicopter shot for that sort of stuff but exactly imagine the spoof action you could have done with drones in those <laughs> would have been amazing <laughs> would have been cop on the edge 12 it, it would have been cop on the edge 12 absolutely and there's still time there's still time um i i remember actually having a conversation with you in i don't know why this has stuck with me it was in the canteen and you were pitching a film to me which i suspect became this one 
because you pitched this. Awesome. I love that. I love that. <laughs> you pitched, for, for anybody who doesn't know, I'm holding up alone for those who aren't watching it on video. Uh, Phil, one of Phil's, it's your first film, I think, alone, isn't it, Phil? First film, yeah. First film, yeah. 24 years of age, uh, produced by David Ball, who done Creepshow Whoa. 2 and Day of the Dead. Very oh. cool bloke. Cool, cool. I remember you, you pitched this scene to me, uh, a horror scene, and it was about a, a victim being stalked in daylight with thousands of people around. And you were talking about somebody in a nightclub that was still being stalked. So you had that whole being on their own terror, even though there's loads of people around. And that always stayed with me. But there's a, a scene similar to that in Alone, but it's not quite that. So was that the same thing you were talking to me about? Or was that a, a different idea entirely? Or can you even remember that? I think that was... Yeah, I do remember it. I think, yeah, I was... It's, it's kind of like how things work. I was working on an idea, I think it was called Dark Corners, which was basically would have been a, a stalker movie because it just it just scares me that you could be doesn't matter who you are could be sat on a train could be in a club could be in a bar could be walking home and if somebody else with a different thing going on their brain sees you and you lock into their code of what they want to do and how you are in their life you become kind of a figment of whatever their desire is or their you know their want is or their need is now, mm. I, that's out of your control you don't even know it's happening it's happening you know away from you and then that's going to come in at your life at some point and catch you off guard found that very scary and i think it was those ideas which actually ended up probably getting me alone because that came about from i've done the ma at the international film school wales which they set up so I graduated from University of Wales, Newport. Then they set up Clive Myers up the International Film School Wales. Done a year there, which again was a bit chaotic and didn't really. It was a bit experimental. I shot shot a completely different film there because I was doing sort of a, a coming of age sort of a, you know sort of very talky drama stuff called Skipping Without Rope, which was the same night out from a girl's perspective and a boy's perspective of kind of like dating circle. So I cut two films and I think it was like David Ball saw those and he was like, okay, let's go talk to this guy because he obviously knows what um, what he wants. At this time, I graduated from there. So I was working, I think it was a Shedman Theatre box office and then working in the M pub. So doing two jobs got a call from David Ball out of the blue to meet him in a pub. And I was sat there and it, because I knew I was big into horror, because that's obviously like in my DNA, I love horror films. And I said, oh, we've got this uh, script for a movie that we want to do, but it, it needs a sort of younger person's perspective or somebody that loves the genre and, and can kind of tell us what they do with it and, you know, what isn't working and what is working. And uh, so they just kind of needed a script analysis on it basically and this was like a pub in Cardiff somewhere about five o'clock in the afternoon and they said if, if we give you this script and you can do this we'll give you kind of 250 quid which is what you need at that time isn't it there's a lot of bills to pay 250 mm. quid went a lot you know didn't have a <laughs> didn't have a credit crisis like we do now so they said the figures we need it by this time tomorrow so that evening I sort of had to sit down and read the script and then come up with, I kind of, I think it was about a thirty-page document on what I do with it, what I change, what it needs to be, like coming up with like rough scene ideas, how how to shoot it, kind of whole kind of like bible. So I took that to them the following day, 
they were born his partners they read it and so you're sitting there with like these guys reading away wondering if you get it 250 quid and then at the end of it at a discussion they liked what had been written they they asked me some questions and they were like okay you can they they would all pass me across the check for 250 pounds and uh, i went to get it and then he snatched it away he says oh he can direct it <laughs> and you think he's joking and, it wasn't, and that, that was it it was like a week later we went into uh, yeah, we pre-production and i was walking into you know the sherman theater in the morning going uh i've got to go and do a film now and they're like oh when do you go i says no i'll go now <laughs> so i'm off by and that was it first first film which was an insane experience. It's, it's amazing how it happens so fast and just sort of end up falling into it. It is. It's kind of like, I mean, there's obviously a process of meetings beforehand. So kind of I've been up, Neil Wagstaff, who was on the MA with me, took me up to their company, CF1. And they sort of skipped me out rope. I think they then sort of read the stuff that I was doing with Dark Corners, which was a script I was talking to you about. And thing, you know, from that, it kind of all sort of had a, as it's a discussion was happening outside of my control that suddenly came into my being with a phone call and then a meeting in a pub, eventually making first feature film. So there you go from film school, where you're just in charge of your own stuff to an actual, you know, proper production that's got a million pound budget and John Shrapnel cast in it and Miriam Margolis and, you know, real. Proper, proper actors who hmm. are going to be listening to some 24-year-old. Uh, you know, but it was great. It was a very kind of, um, it was a, in terms of kind of like what you could do with the script, they kind of wanted it a certain way. So you kind of had to balance between creatively what it is they were going for and kind of yeah. not kind of going too far away from what their model model was. So, you know, but it, it was ex- quite experimental. They did let me do some stuff, which you know, yeah. you you you've touched on it there, and I, I did want to ask that because um, Miriam Margols, for example, she's an absolute tour de force. I've I've seen her interviewed a few times, and even Graham Norton can't keep control of her because she will just go off on one, and she doesn't care what she does or what she says or who she offends. How do you actually direct somebody with that much? power and that much sort of well, just that that just that much presence how, how do you control her or do you yeah i think it's the, the same thing as uh, anybody or any actor turn up they just want to know that you're confident you're in control and they can trust you that what you're going to get from them is going to be within you know a certain box so to speak so their performance is being curated in the right way. And I think that's kind of like your job as a director anyway. It's the fact that we're there just to balance. So we're not too far over the top, but we're kind of, we're transmitting what we need to transmit story-wise. And obviously, you know, you get to sit down with Miriam and you get to sit down with George Shannon beforehand where you can go through kind of like your lookbooks and your storyboards and how you want to shoot it and what you're trying to achieve. So just from your kind of vision of what you're trying to get they they become on board so they like it doesn't matter what age you are creatively you're excited by different creative kind of visions going on 
so they're excited about it again okay he's got an idea of what it is he wants to do so then you get on set which is you know i think if you're disciplined and, and you know you know what it is you want from them and also you know within a certain amount of takes you've got what you want because you don't want to exhaust it now so because the thing about and they're so professional they come in they know what they need to do they know the tone of what performance you want tone's a big point because it's that kind of just balance of getting it right mm. and then it really is it's just a two-way respectful it's like there wasn't too much testing going on like a lot of actors especially in her position probably test you if they didn't trust you right. but we had a lot of trust from the start and i think that's a combination of myself and also the fact that when it's well produced they put a crew around you which is kind of very experienced the whole thing feels very safe space for them to for performance and they know that when you say cut and we can move on they're going yes i do agree that we have got this <laughs> and we can move on yeah, and we had to do some crazy stuff. Because I remember David, I wanted to do like some time lapse stuff, like she was a smoker. She isn't a smoker. The casework she was playing was a smoker, so she had these herbal cigarettes. And what you usually use now, obviously, is just a hand double. I wanted a time lapse with a cigarette burning down. And keep cutting to this cigarette burning down. And uh, we actually sat Miriam goes in the chair with her hand and the camera just on a close up of Miriam goes hand, not even the facts where the money is. Just with a cigarette burning down, which David Ball found hilarious. And he just sat there with like, talent like me and Margolis, and he sat there for 12 minutes watching the cigarette burn down, time lapse. It's cool, it's in the film, it's all there. <laughs> it seemed too bothered. It's good to see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I watched it again last night, and the, you, you do do some real, some uncomfortable close ups with Miriam. So you're, you're really zooming right in on her face, and, and just there's lots of really fast jump cuts on her face to make. Basically, to, I believe it's to disorientate the viewer because it, it's not an easy film it's, to it, watch, is it? It's a, it's a difficult film to watch. It is a difficult film to watch because it is... Um, I think the first thing was, that was one of the things that they found interesting. Like, uh, Miriam was like, how close are you having the camera? Because they're not... You know, they, they're not... Where I put it was actually closer than they usually, usually have it. So that was like an interesting thing for them in terms of acting because they have to stay... Because the, the focus becomes... You know, they've got to stay in position more. There's mm. less room for them to move around. Behind that was the fact that the main character were in there for people watching. It's kind of, it's a PO. Most of the movies POV, so which point of view from the stalker. So not only are you seeing what they are seeing, you're kind of seeing it through their lens. So this person kind of has OCD and a whole load of different sort of mental illnesses going on and it was like visually representing kind of like the ocd which is the repetition of things or stuff that is dirty and it's like how i would describe it is if you if you look at a spot on your face in the mirror the, the whole picture is this but all you see is that and that's what we were trying to do with the the camera which is even though if you put the camera there you see where that your focus is on the spot so you need to go close on that because that is where the POV of Alex would be looking sort of on the dirtiness of the yeah. smoking and the fingers and the scruffiness of the place and the disorientation of the fragmentation of the mind, the information that is taken up, which is what was happening a lot with this sort of the repetition, the jump cuts and moving it around. Didn't really kind of have a linear sort of, okay, we're going to go in and cover this in a wide and then we're going to go in for sort of over the shoulder and over the shoulder, do some singles. It was kind of like you were covering it 
from my character you weren't shooting you were shooting from the point of view of the main character mm-hmm. which obviously you've got no reverses you're always in on doing that you're not coming around but say behind the caseworker and then shooting alex who is talking it's like alex is always inside what they are seeing mm. so for that it made it made it a difficult a sort of it doesn't follow the pattern of what you expect to see when you're making a film so on that note it was quite experimental um i remember speaking to the producers because they thought that this sort of stuff hadn't done before so i was like i was making them aware of this smack my bitch up project video which was uh big at the time which is the whole thing was kind of like all pov and it's like and that's basically what we're doing yes of course i was trying to think yeah because without spoiling the film for anybody who hasn't seen it the I've, I've, you, now you've mentioned that it's suddenly twigged the smack my bitch up video has the same effectively i, I was like twist at the end doesn't yeah. it yeah yeah but yeah, I won't spoil it for anybody it, who hasn't hasn't seen it. That was the thing. It was like very funny with perception, isn't it, of what you think a gender is in, in a certain type of movie and how it ends up, what you can do when you flip the script and that. It was like, yeah, it's, it's been done in a, an awesome video mm. for the, by the Prodigy. Um, yeah, film wise, it was um, it was it was you know small budget movie. It was uh, had kind of like a limited release which was great with you know when it was on when we had vhs and blockbuster video it's great seeing all the uh all the vhs is there and i think it done okay i mean we've got we got it some film festivals it sort of got up for a british independent film award for editing by jonathan rudd uh we had two editors we started off with uh young guys a cool guy uh called nick lofton he he'd done kind of like the first edit but then the producers weren't happy with the way it was going they which had done a movie previously of Jonathan Rudd, so they had to switch from who mm. done a great job getting us somewhere to Jonathan coming in who sort of really came in with more of a kind of like a cinematic overview of how to make it all gel and fit. Yeah. And so that was there. Uh, and also we had, they had Rick Wakeman on to do the music because he was a big friend with David Ball and Rick Wakeman was going to do the score, which is very exciting. But we could... The thing about it was we we were temping it with uh, music from John Carpenter's The Fog, uh, Requiem for a Dream, Clint Mansell, a lot of stuff to give it the edge that we wanted. And uh, Rick Wayman, we couldn't get the score from him. We waited a while, and then the first kind of like CD came through, which obviously we're very excited about. He's done a lot of obviously Ken Russell films. He's absolutely genius and a lovely bloke and very funny. Uh, but when I first heard the soundtrack, when I first heard the score, it was. It just had a, a vibe which would have been great if it was a 70s, right. like a 70s movie, but the, the simple, tonally it just didn't fit with what we were doing. So how do we how do we continue with this? Because we put it to pitch and it's when they're not marrying up. So then we um, we went, I went, well, let's just go away, get a keyboard and some like samples and I think we can come up with what we want. Something. So we actually went away me. Yeah, it's a Jonathan Rudd who had a friend called Jim Betteridge who had a studio. We went in there and I used to play some like tunes on my Casio keyboard from like when I was a kid and I'd play and record them on the phone and we're going to the studio. So, and then what we did is then we put that to picture and then we put Rick Waitman's uh, score to picture, just like the, the few the few uh, cues that it had done. And then the producers kind of had to make a decision on which way they were going because obviously they had to make a uncomfortable phone call to Rick if 
we didn't want to continue. And then we then we'd have the extra work of scoring an old picture. So we ended up having to go and score a picture. Oh right! But that was just to get the just to get the sound right because the thing about it was like the whole idea of a load was one of the pictures was here to fear because you're inside the headspace. So not only you see it, it's kind of like the important thing of like being able to hear your movie, what it is you want in terms of the sound, in terms of the music. I didn't want any kind of sort of tinny sound effects. Wanted sort of very organic, eerie drones and stuff going on. So it's a very intense movie in terms of like. The tone of it is very dour, I'd say. Mm. Kind of doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> what is it? Yeah, it's it's very different, very different to the second film that you went on to make. It was. It was like it. Bizarre with alone. It was kind of um, some of the stuff. It, I'm proud of some of it doesn't work. It's kind of like the thing. It's one of those movies where it tries to do too much in terms of like the. the there's the police storyline and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes you think if you remove that from these movies, then you just get into the nitty gritty of what Alex was doing and how they were working and then you tell their story away from you. You remove the police story, you might have had a more coherent film in terms of just this space that this person works in rather than kind of going off and then kind of doing the sort of police chasing down this person, which, you know, so kind of like some of it works, some of it, Something you know doesn't really work, but at 24, you're making the first film, which isn't initially from kind of like your script or whatever, so you're almost a gun for hire. And then, uh, and there's so then you think, okay, film one down. I mean, this is like you made a feature film, that's a that's a big deal. It's hard, it's hard to get a feature <laughs> film done. So, when, when's number two happening? Well, number two didn't happen for seven years. Was it that long? From um, from Alone to Lesbian Vampire Killers. Yeah, seven years. So in between in between that, you got you got one film, doesn't really set you up where you want to where you're thinking of going, because it's not like suddenly you got, you know, you get an agent and you get managers and represented and stuff. It's kind of like a you know, it's a small fish in a massive pond of movies and other filmmakers. So then it was like a long process of development. I was developing something else called Zombie Island, which I still love to make, which was a riff on the um, reality TV craze at the time, which is still huge now, but it would be like death sports television, like The Running Man, where seven contestants had 70 minutes to survive on an island with genetically engineered zombies called the Joshua Breed. And that was like, that was a cool movie. And a guy called Vic Bateman at AB Pictures really wanted to do it. And we had like maquettes made uh, of like the zombies and everything. And it was a, it's a long process, so we wrote that. Got some money from the UK Film Council as well, so that helped out. And it was just a long process of kind of like trying to develop that, trying to develop. There was another movie in there which was a mermaid horror movie, so it's in the horror genre. Mm. And we wanted to do, we wanted to do kind of like we were thinking maybe we should do some really low budget, fifty grand uh, sort of horror movies, you know. Real, real lo-fi stuff. And I had a friend um, at MTV at that time. And they were like, oh, my friends, they're writing this script. And it's kind of like a riff on the hammer. So like Twins of Evils, Vampire Lovers, that sort of stuff. But it's called Lesbian Vampire Killer. So it's a riff on the, the lesbian vampire subgenre that Hammer kind of created. Yeah. And I was like, awesome. And anyway, six weeks later, script came along. It, it was hilarious. Because you're thinking... 
what's it going to be like? But it was actually, it was generally funny. We realised it, a lot of love for wooden genre. So it was a good riff on, you know, if you took the comedy out of it, you got a straightforward Hammer movie with, you know, um, the, if you did it from the perspective of the vicar in the movie trying to rescue his daughter, hmm. in lesbian vampire killers, you got a straightforward Hammer film. And uh, so initially, Paul Hutfield was going to um, direct it, 50 grand, and it was going to be, I think there was like, you know, they're going to have people like Alex Zane in it and Emma Willis and like a lot of their MTV friends and stuff. And then just, I can't remember like the ins and outs details, but through Vic Bateman, who was into Zombie Island, he was big into lesbian vampire killers. And obviously he talked about it at a few festivals and markets. So the response had been good. So he reckons you could probably get a million for it. And I think um, always still attached to the director. I don't know what happened in uh, the course of the situation, but they were like, we want to, um, we want to go a different way with direct. They they were saying, and I remember someone saying to me, "But, but don't worry, you, you're not the director because you can't do comedy." <laughs> Somebody put me down at some point. It wasn't Big Bateman or anyone, which was bizarre. Because twenty four hours later, it was like Big Bateman was asking, "Going, no, you you can do it. You, you can't like know your horror stuff." And it's like it's the same similar thing, horror comedy. So we'd love to do it. So I think yeah, that was an awkward conversation with um paul who would have to relinquish the reins of like directing lesbian vampire killers and i would take the reins over he said it was yeah kind of understood it but it would be a bit like watching somebody have sex with his wife so it was a bit he was i got it he was upset um uh, anyway so when it when i think that was 2006 or whatever and then that was a long long process we actually shot in 2008 and in between there, we got the film up and running, but then um, all the money fell for it. But while we got the film up and running, we cast James Corden. And I, James Corden came in for an audition because I liked him in Teachers and the History Boys. So he came in for an audition. He was awesome. He was in. I had his number. We kept talking. The film fell through, um, which was probably a good thing because I think at the time, Andrew Lee Potts was... Uh, playing Jimmy, and I don't think James Gordon was too happy with Angelou Potts being Jimmy. So mm. like, <laughs> we could have turned it to a nightmare shoot. Anyway, so rule at rock bottom. I'm skint as anything because um, nobody's been <laughs> paid any money. Because as in the film industry, everyone does everything for free. Yeah, um, that's what everyone should understand. It's all freebies until somebody signs you a check. Uh, so. There we were, nothing had happened. But before the previous to this, I've been in for a meeting with Simon Oakes and Hammer, who had got up and running. And they'd heard about lesbian vampire killers and they thought it would be a perfect kind of like Hammer vehicle for them because it is basically a pastiche of what Hammer was and bringing in kind of like sort of having fun with the ridiculousness of the stuff that they did. So they were in. So I got a phone call because they'd heard obviously the film had gone down. They were like, uh, we we want to do lesbian vampire killers, like Hammer, Hammer Horror presents lesbian vampire killers, great title that would have been. I was like, that's awesome. They were like, you've kind of got to get rid of all the producers and all the people that are involved at the moment. And that was kind of like, um, obviously a lot of people sort of got a movie going, but hadn't really been honest or got it going with no money. So they weren't too happy about all of that. So to do, again, 
this involved then some awkward phone calls about kind of like shaking off the elements that Hammer did not want. So had that call and done that kind of hard work. Didn't didn't get rid of AV pictures with Bainham, but obviously said to him, "Here's the situation. How are we interested in making the movie?" Big Bateman's like, "We want to make the movie still." I'm like, "That's cool. We just got to find the money to make it." I'm I'm like getting the job, temping uh, at this point with some place which done that. What they they done the? It was like events management but i was the person on the phone and farmers would phone up and they'd be booking onto kind of rapeseed oil courses and stuff and, and lectures and they're going so basically i'm doing nothing that's connected to the film business and just earning money to pay rent and then uh, at lunchtime i then disappear off and i'd have a phone call with, with like vic or i'd have a phone call with the head of hammer or i'd be trading emails while i'm supposed to be taking phone calls <laughs> about about this movie Luckily, what was happening was kind of like Hammer were differing a bit because they, they were offering a kind of development deal, but they weren't offering a sort of progress to production deal, which I thought was like, well, this can't be stuck in development, you know what I mean? Let's get on with it. Big Bateman and the guys at AV Pictures, they got a meeting with Momentum Pictures with a couple of guys called Robert Wallach and Safia Marchand, who are a couple of great guys who are at Momentum. So at lunchtime, I took a long lunch, said to the boss, I'm off, long lunch, I'll be back to put more farmers onto these various courses. Uh, and then went into the room with Xavier and Robert Wallach. And then I literally just, I had so much kind of like visual stuff, all these storyboards and sequences. And I basically acted out the whole film, explained how I could do it for this amount of money, what I'd do with the effects and the visual effects and why it wouldn't cost so much and how we could, what we could do, where we could shoot it, how we could make it look good, all that kind of stuff. And uh, they were very, Xavier and Robert were very excited at the end of the, I'm thinking, I've got to get back, I've got to get back to work. Um, <laughs> at the end, they're like, oh yeah, this is great. We're, we're going to come in for half. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't believe anything because who believes anything in the film business? So they say they're going to come in for half the budget. Anyway, Big Bateman and the guys at AV, they're very excited by all of this. I'm like, great, see you later, I'm off to work. And uh, they went, don't worry, we're going to go and find the other half of the money. My other half of the money is, you know, who knows? Anyway, they did. They went and found the other half of the money. And I think sort of it was five months between that meeting, which was, I think was in the November of 2007, and then getting up and running, April, May 2008. And in between then, we got an excellent producer on board called Steve Clarkall because they were going, at that point, technically, I was the producer and it was quite exhausting. I, I was battering off, uh, you know, phone calls with Hammer and I'm doing phone calls with Vic and I'm trying to figure all this thing out. Um, I remember then having to have an awkward phone call with Hammer who were really angry about the fact that I was still with AV and Momentum were going to do it and they'd all got the money together and I kind of had to explain that, okay, I'm a filmmaker, you are offering me a development deal and these guys are offering me money to make the film. Mm. To which point Simon Oaks relinquished having a go and he actually said, you, you're right, we should have been more aggressive and we should have come in and kind of not left you hanging, which is why, well, so, you know, again, it was... Uh, I think I got a phone call. I think I was like, I think I was at a drop. I don't play golf, but 
used to go to the driving range just to come up and knock balls because it got rid of stress and stuff and got a phone call from Vic going, it's all done, Phil, it's all done. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> what does that mean? And then uh, Steve Clark all phoned me up on the way back and he says, uh, he says, I kind of think we're greenlit. And I went, what do you mean? He goes, I've got a phone call from Zav saying, Zav here at Momentum saying, it's all good, we're done, we can do this. I says, well, I've got a phone call from Vic Bateman saying, it's all good, Phil, we could do this. He's going, well, I think that's, that's as good as a green light we're going to get. <laughs> I was going, so what do we do? He goes, well, I think you better give up what you're doing right now and, and come and do your proper job. So again, it was like, it was a bit like a load. It was like the following morning, I went into the job I was doing. I was like, I've got to go and make a movie. They're like, okay, that's cool. When you go now, no. <laughs> say bye. I'm out the door. I went from, I went from like, uh, yeah, sort of the office where I was booking the pharmacy on to, I think we started in Guy Ritchie's office because Steve Clark had just finished rock and roll. So he said the offices set up at Guy Ritchie's place. So we went there and there. Uh, Started on prep for lesbian vampire killers. Another story within all of that. While it when the film fell apart, it fell apart. Yeah, when, no, the film fell when it first fell apart. Not now. So we get we we backtrack it. So when it first fell apart, the James Gordon Andrew Lee Potts version that fell apart. Uh, James Gordon phones me up and he's going, "Look, if this does get going again, I think I know." can play Jimmy because it's done this film and let's take a look at it and tell me what you think. This is so there he goes, my mate's coming to HTV studios just where we were in uh, in Wales and she's gonna bring you some like DVDs to have a look at. So I go downstairs, Ruth Jones, who obviously co wrote Gammon and Stacey, she brings me in lovely, she brings me in um DVDs Gavin and Stacey. I go home and watch Gavin and Stacey, which was hilarious. Matt Horn was was great. Phone up James and like, so would he do it? Right, yeah, I reckon he'll do it. So I think he phoned Matt. Matt was up for it, and that was that was that. So it was quite funny because at that stage I was still kind of I was then talking to those two and talking to their agents while I was doing the hammer thing. So I had all these kind of like different conversations with all these people where you don't really know what you're doing. I think that's the main thing about the film industry. Don't worry, nobody does. Nobody knows what they're doing. So you just got to kind of say, I've got something, it's of value, and these, it's going to be awesome. I think you kind of go along with that. So that's how eventually we had those two still attached. Funnily enough, in the, in the pitch, because they don't have any value internationally to sell anything, it was the title and the idea of it, which was the selling point, not so much. James Gordon and Matt Horn having them on, they knew that they could deliver the laughs, which was a great thing to have. But it was um, not their name specifically that kind of got it over over the line. It was actually the, the, the title and what it could do in the marketplace, which got it over the line. And then subsequently, they obviously uh, won loads of BAFTAs, got well overexposed, and then we released the film. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to time it. That's the way to time it. So what what was it like actually directing James Corden? Because because again he's a he's a very larger than life sort of character, or or was he slightly different back then? I think he he was James Corden went from kind of James Corden I could speak to on the phone to James Corden speak to my agent. In actual fact, it was pretty for me directing him. He just needed to know if it was funny or not. So basically that that was the remit. You know, do a do a take. Is it funny? 
yes, it's getting there. We'll give it another couple of goes. And then we kind of like, we will work out kind of a shorthand where we know that you can try stuff out to make it, to make it work or make it as funny as it can be. It's a good, good process. I think they, I think he, you know, rolls some of the crew up now and then just with obviously stuff that I don't, you, when you're directing, you don't see kind of, you know, how a personality, because it acts as different to you than he is to kind of like everybody else or other cast members. I think he was at uh, would get frustrated with kind of like Paul McGann and some of the other cast members and but he did he does listen a lot. There was kind of like we had some difficulties with scenes with him and Paul McGann. And I'll sit down, I'll go, I'll say to him, look, you need to you need to help me out here because, you know, I need you on the side because we're trying to get through this and we're trying to get this that kind of spiel. And he would go off and then he would come back while we're doing an EPK and he's going, oh, I feel I just got I just got told by Phil, it's not like being told off by my dad. So, but he, then he comes on board and he, and he, bizarrely, when you just say it, matter of fact, that this is how it is and this is what I need. Very good. And Matt Horn, very professional. The whole, the whole cast were, it was the best fun you could have on a film under such stressful circumstances of trying to make a film. But yeah. everybody seemed like they were having fun from sound department, makeup department, camera department. You know, we shot it that with we shot it with three million quid, thirty-two days. We shot it down on the three mill stage. We built that the woods and everything down there, so it was like Christmas every day. Trust me, because it's oh, going man. in and it's dark, and then you smoke it up, and then you're walking with the lights and stuff. I mean, I want I I get down there, you know, early as anything before anybody, and just be you know walking around that place, mapping out shots, and just being in there in the space because it was amazing. It was like you know, it was like Disney World. Being on the film set, and because you have those things where it's just like you know the, the vampires were coming for makeup like five hours before there's any call time for anyone else, and you, I'll be down there go check it out, what are you doing? It'd be like putting sort of makeup on the teeth and stuff. It was great. <laughs> it really was. Oh, it sounds like you really miss it. Like you want to be back there doing it now. Yeah, it's the most most fun I had making a film. Out of three films I made, it was definitely the the one where it's just like. The most, the most seamless, and I think we just. I think I don't think we even thought we were making a film. Momentum would come down there, look at the the dailies, and they'd look at what was being cut. And I think they went from kind of thinking it was just sort of a DVD release for them to them being theatrical. Because I just thought it'd be, you know, just be a DVD release or whatever, and that'd be hmm. just be a small little film, and it became like a, you know, became like a big deal, and people still mention the name now whether it's a you know whether it's in a good way or whether it's in a kind of like in a bad way hmm. well speaking of bad way do you watch league of their own i do not you do not i was, I was gonna say i mean james corden i, I, I know i know of it yeah. you are aware of it, yeah yeah on on yeah. on league of their own james corden does get uh lesbian vampire killers mentioned to him a few times and when it's mentioned to him, for some reason, he says, oh, it didn't happen. didn't happen. That never happened. I don't know what you're talking about, mate. What does that, that feel like? Because that, that, that would... I, I've got too much of a thin skin. I couldn't take that. No, I think... Uh, I mean, I was okay. I think knowing James, James is a bit like a leaf in a breeze sometimes. <laughs> so he'll go with whatever's the most popular opinion. And obviously, uh, making lesbian vampire killers, it was wrapped up in a bad time of his life. You know, when you think about it, the 
you're critically annihilated doing the Brits. Horning Gordon got smashed out of the thing. And literally, I, I, I think the, the greatest film you could have come up with when you've got an entire British media trying to take you down is Lesbian Vampire. I, I, I don't care what anyone says. It's like that, that film was already <laughs> prepared to be sliced down. Key about making a movie separate from any crit, critical appraisal, whatever it does, is like, the film you've made, how do you feel about it? Have you have you set out to do what it is you wanted to do? The film ended up the film that you had in your head. Does it play the way you want it to play? I can still watch that film now because I love it. I think it just I don't look at it. I can look at it alone, I can see faults and it's a hard watch because you remember things. I can watch Lesbian Vampire Killers. I'm always watching it like a, a punter. When I watch it, it's like and out of body I'm like, and that's a film I want to watch on a Friday night. <laughs> I think the great thing about it, out, outside of like the, uh, yeah, it did great me a bit to start with, with him kind of like smashing down. It feels like, you know, he's, he's bullying the little kid. He's bullying yeah. the fact that, you know, it, the, the, the thing about what everybody does in the business is like you, you get something done, you move on. You know what I mean? There's not a lot of actors out there that kind of like, smash down on kind of like work they've done because everyone knows how hard it is to get a film made and how hard people work on films. So you're not just smashing a film, you're smashing the people that worked really hard to get a film made for kind of like a, a cheap laugh or to try and distance yourself from something that you feel like isn't the, the critical high that you wanted. But um, that's why I think I just keep mentioning it all the time, anytime, and always. It's a film when you think about it, it's like how many years old, 10? 11, 12 years old, 12 years old, still gets mentioned, which is like, you can't say that about most films. No. No, that's very true. That's very true. And and, and speaking of films, um, I believe you've you've written something that's gone into production now, but you are not associated with it in any way. Is that right? That's right. So I wrote this film called Oak, which was based on, it's a story based on my childhood. Like where we grew up, there was a field at the back of our homes and then, the bottom of the field was a line of trees, like a woods, and it was called Boggy Bottom. And at night, if you stared across this field at this oak tree, this old oak tree, if you stared long enough, you could all see a kind of figure moving. We could all see it. You know what I mean? It wasn't just me. It was like, you know, a group of best mates. So what we'd do is we'd dare each other, run across the field at night, touch the oak, run back. Sometimes you just talk about daring each other, no one would do it. But I remember doing it a couple of times and it was like the scariest experience of my life. You know what I mean? Just like running across, touching that thing and running back pitch black. So the idea came about was, well, what if what if you touch the oak and you die? That's the kind of local legend, isn't it? So in 2015, I just shot a movie called Within over in America, a studio experience, which was awful. But um, I met up with a guy called Scott Winhouse, who's a great guy and directs and writes like action movies as well. I've got this horror movie idea called Oak. Gave him the rough plot. So we sat down, we thrashed out the tail of this uh, oak tree, which is an amalgamation of like, you know, uh, the sort of the oak myth that I grew up with, creating that fear, creating a teen story around it. So, you know, a group of teens touch the oak, you know, Five, four of them touch the oak, one of them doesn't come back. What happens? They will start getting rashes on their hands. They start disappearing. What the hell is in the oak? They will start seeing this figure. 
of a nurse, like a thin skeletal nurse called Eleanor Gray. And she's obviously connected to the Oaks somehow. And there's a story about her. So this thing, when you see her, the next thing you usually happen is something's taking you and you're gone. So we wrote it in 2015, went through several rewrites and it just kind of like, it kept popping up in conversations with people. Scott was having conversations with, and, you know, he would pitch like several scripts. Todd and Oak would always be the one that's flagged. I was going, that one, where's that going? So I think it tried to get made quite a few times. And there's a company called Stereoscopic Films. I think they'd just done a horror movie called The Accursed. And uh, Scott knew him and they'd phoned up and said, what's happening with Oak? They, we kind of signed an auction about a year ago, which was like, for no money, just like, you know, usual option, like a, here's a dollar, you got it for 12 months, see what you can do with it. And, lo and behold, they got like a, an amazing game right now shooting it with uh, Joey Lauren Adams, who was uh, from Chasing Amy, Amanda Sante, uh, a load of up-and-coming um, young actors, so it looks really cool. So, just checking it out on Instagram and stuff, and it's kind of, they, you know, they got their own director on board because that's the way they wanted to go. That was one of the things that is, and I think that's down to the fact that sometimes if the person that writes it, directs it, that producers worry that they're going to have some sort of, you know, edge creatively in terms of controlling mm. the situation. So it's better to have someone, a director coming in, interpreting some other source material. So it's, it's been interesting. As I said, I kind of like seeing the movie evolve through checking out IMDB and seeing stuff on Instagram because... <laughs> There hasn't been many kind of like conversations because this is what happens with writers. So it's it's kind of nice to be on the position of a writer. You know, writers are always bemoaning, which is just like they're the first person in. You've got this great idea. It's on a blank page. You've got words on a blank page. Hey, you can make a movie. But that's <laughs> And then it's like, we're making a movie. And it's like the writer is the forgotten person. The reason the movie exists is this insane idea here translates and spews out into a blank page there and then goes into production. So... So the uh, the first people to come up with it, the thing, uh, from my experience right now, is also the last people to get paid. So we're still waiting to get, <laughs> still waiting to get paid. I've checked in. It's not like they're saying you're not getting paid, but it's just like, uh, it's the wire in the wire. It's the check in the mail, what's mm. going on. Yeah. I'm sure that if the crew wasn't being paid, they wouldn't be turning over, right? But um, it's looking good. I'm I'm. I'm excited to see what comes out of it. I know Scott's done some rewrites on it because uh, him and his manager work together and they wanted to like add some other elements in. I think there's like, I see on uh, IMDb sort of like there's detective characters and kind of like other adult elements. We had less adults in the version we did because I kind of like went along with the idea of adults really can't help you out in a situation where death's coming for you as a kid, you know, I mean, as a teenager, you've got to sort it out yourself. So the parents were kind of elbowed and the sort of, school situation was sort of elbow this side, but I think they brought in sort of a high school element and a detective element, which is cool because it kind of works with Fire of Destination, kind of had those elements on. So it's kind of like what they're used to seeing within a horror movie. But I think a lot of the uh, visuals that I'm seeing are still there, which is like, it looks creepy. I mean, it's creepy as hell. It's a story about blooming old oak tree, which yeah. is actually it's a, um, it's a combination of, the Eleanor Grey character came from another childhood story because when I grew up in Bury St Edmunds, there was a major haunting by by someone called the Grey Lady. Now, the Grey Lady was apparently 
combination of stories. One was a nun who was now an illicit illicit affair with a monk and then got obviously done for witchcraft and killed so she haunts the place and another uh, story was a nurse that came back from the Crimean war with a soldier the dad wasn't happy shot on both and so she came back haunted and the imagery of the of uh, a nurse kind of felt fitting so that's that was the imagery that we took into Eleanor Gray so the, the gray lady turned into Eleanor Gray in um in oak, so oak, yeah, an amalgamation just shows that stuff from your childhood can filter through into a uh, straightforward teen horror. Hmm. That hopefully will be kind of a combination of the ring it follows in the Nightmare on Street. So you know, high hopes. Yeah, and and the situation for you is reversed because on this time you're not taking over a film that somebody else wrote and they're having to watch you sleep with their wife. It's the other way around. And yes, basically, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in Paul's position of, of watching somebody else, from, you know, metaphorically, you know, hmm. have sex with my wife. Yeah, but, um, metaphorically, metaphorically. Yeah. Um, your your book, I've seen you you talking about that quite a lot. The um, the big fin book. What was the giant fin? Giant fin, sorry, giant fin, giant fin. What, what was right, yeah. what, what was the the thinking behind behind that? Other than the fact you loved yours, obviously. Yeah, massive fan of yours. Uh, obviously, um, <laughs> it came about as I said. Giant Finn was actually the title of my Jaws rip-off movie that I was doing when I was a kid, and I make cardboard sharks out of cardboard boxes, and I do my own kind of Giant Finn two, Giant Finn three D, the whole thing. So the title stuck with me, just in my head. And then there's my mother-in-law who was always like, you "Should be writing children's books." Because I was coming up with ideas for children's book, but you know, it's a lot of effort to write it and then illustrate it. And my brain was more in kind of like movies and screenplays. And my eldest son, Brody, named after obviously Brody <laughs> from Jaws, so a lot of connection there. He has uh, autism that. and ADHD, and due to the fact that he's in the, you know which is cool but he was in the school system and then he starts to realize that there's things about him and the way he interacts is, is slightly different from the other kids so he'd come back from school and he'd be like i want to be normal i don't want to be different which i didn't like because that's not how the world works the world needs different different is what makes us all individual all excited we should be accepting of everybody's differences we shouldn't strive for normality that should be not the goal in life and so the story came about because it was like, well, yeah, giant fin, the shark of a massive fin that wants to fit in. And that's the story of this tale of like, giant fin's got a huge fin and goes, swims around, meets all these different sharks and realises that sharks are thousands of different species of all shapes and sizes, all very different, all do different things. And realises there isn't another shark like him. He's individual, he's different, and that should be cool because all of these other sharks are happy to be a whale shark or a tiger shark or a hammerhead. And so that was that. Yeah. So again, wrote that sort of 2015, 2016 as a rhyming tale and then kind of started to illustrate it uh, sort of two years ago and then, yeah, released it last November. And that's doing really well. Hooked up with a local charity here called Youth Options, which do fantastic work for, uh, for children and have fantastic schemes set up for children where they're let down by the school system and they're that kind of place in between where people can go when they don't know where else to go and help their, their kids out and youth options do a great job so like 10 percent of all sales from giant thing go goes to them so it's been a great story starting to work on the next one giant fit two 
So Giant Finn now, it'll be Giant Finn and the sea that time forgot. So Giant Finn is now going to go back in time and see the Mosasaurus and the Loch Ness Monster and me, all these sort of prehistoric creatures. But yeah, that was, uh, mm. and that's the whole thing about self-marketing because you're self-published. So you've got no one behind you. It's just you, yourself, and your computer and, you know, doing animations and doing your own artwork and your own posters and getting it out there and trying to, break through on an Amazon algorithm because obviously you, you, self-publishing starts with this level of friends and family and then you've got the outer layer which is kind of like the friends and friends and acquaintances of them then you've got to start to break through into like where nobody knows about it but they will start to know about it somehow mm-hmm. so that's kind of like where it's at now and then obviously the beyond where it starts to kind of filter into people's you know if you like this you should see this <laughs> book so Hopefully, if I do a series of them, eventually the first giant film, you know, become more well-known as yeah. more of them kind of we go down the line. And and I trust uh, if you do a giant fin three, it'll be giant fin 3D. 3D, uh, yeah, we're going to have to figure that one out because it would have to come with the special glasses, but yeah. that definitely is what we want to do. Or it'd be a pop-up book, but I don't know. I don't know how to self-publish a pop-up book because I don't think Amazon have the uh, kind of like the print-on-demand ability for a pop-up. But I could definitely print-on-demand a three D version. It's definitely worth looking into. It's definitely worth looking into. Um, you, you've obviously been in the right place at the right time for for your you know for for a loan, and, and again you were in the right place at the right time for for lesbian vampire killers. What? advice could you give to somebody you know like us being you know 18 year olds trying to get this stuff done what advice would you give to somebody now bearing in mind obviously the film industry is quite different now when the access to to equipment is well it's easy kids today it's too easy yeah it is the advice it's uh you have to make yourself be in the right place at the right time people always talk about luck it's only luck because you're in a situation to make it make it seem like it's lucky but it's all about hard work of a exposing yourself and your work and making connections so it doesn't matter how small the connection is you know it's for me and i lecture up at the university of Hertfordshire on a film course there and what it's about is, is getting this out there so it's like making content getting it on youtube getting your website being present on Insta, being present on TikTok, being present on all the socials and don't be ashamed about making sure that your work is going to reach because what you want is people, if you send a query letter to somebody, which you will always be short and to the point, it's like I made this fit, enter into competitions, win a little award, anything that you can do a little accolade, send into someone, you'll send out X amount of query letters, query emails, everyone can get hold of like email addresses now, it's like go on IMDB Pro and find it. It's like, okay, these people are making the stuff I want to make. You can go to them, email them. You might get one person and they'll go, I'll, I'll, you know, it's lunch. I mean, it's a sandwich. I'll check out the links this person's work. Boom. You know what I mean? Now to watch 30 seconds. If they love it, you might get a meeting. And from that meeting, you might not get an initial, whoa, here, go make a movie. It might be a year down the line. But it's like, oh, you should go and meet this person or you should talk to this person. They want to get you in the room to see if there's somebody you can work with. If it's somebody that they think they can work with, they'll keep you in, keep you in mind. And then that uh, right place at the right time will be the fact that you're in the right place at the right time, but you did it kind of a year ago or two years ago. And that, that time, that uh, kind of time is now. 
an interesting point of fact is yeah it comes from many things uh just you on twitter uh like two years ago said oh you should chat to uh jonathan sofcott yeah. producer yeah. yeah and from that connection because like we both had similar tastes and stuff only yesterday did we actually meet in person because we were discussing something about ninja movies oh, did, been, oh you, you met him yeah right? oh, cool yeah, we met him. We had it like two hour great meeting, great guy. Talks about everything from Jules 3D to Show Kazuki and <laughs> all the situation. And the meeting happened on the day Bruce Willis retired from mm. <laughs> movies, which was a shame, which is, you know, considering we're talking about action movies and what we grew up with. Yeah. So, again, that just proves that from you and a connection of putting stuff out there on Twitter, you were like, you should speak to this guy. I connected we had emails he's read my stuff and then like you know constantly on twitter just now and then and two years later we're meeting because it's there's some there's a oh we could actually work on something this is the thing wasn't the thing then because we didn't have the stuff and we were doing other things but this might be the thing so you might not have to think right when you meet the people but they're in your network then. so it's about building up from nobody knowing you to exposing yourself to the industry and getting just kind of like the smallest intro to create a little network and you only need the smallest network they need a huge one just need a few people that go i like that person when i met them i like the stuff that they've done and then that opportunity will reveal itself but definitely right now i'd have it all be out there so people people could know what you're up to and what you're doing Mm. so you're saying get yourself out there get yourself in front of as many people as possible and don't worry if it takes a long time because these relationships can take a year, two years, several years. Because as you say, it was a it was a few years between you doing Alone and Lesbian Vampire Killers, which itself took a, a long time to actually get off the ground. Exactly. And it all goes from, uh, so for instance, after Lesbian Vampire Killers went and done all the meetings and the general meetings in America and formed a relationship with uh, somebody at New Line cinema and then that was initially about comedies and it was like it was actually three years in where i went for a drink with Jake, dave newstad who was a um exec there and i was talking about i wanted to do a horror movie and they didn't know you see but then the next thing then they sent me scripts they, they sent me a script to like an alien movie they wanted to do and then they said stop reading that and then they sent what was called crawl space then that eventually became within and that was kind of like a two-year process but it was the relationship, the conversation that you have formed over like many years of just kind of like chatting and sending emails saying what you're up to and what you're doing. And people in this industry don't forget once they've had an initial meeting and once you kind of form that connection, you can be away for 12 months and come back and oh, I've just written this or I'm just worked on a short film or just, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it doesn't go. It's not like you have the general and it disappears. It's like you form a relationship. It's just tapping into it now and then. Keep active, yeah. Write screenplays, enter them into competitions, try and get stuff like some accolades and some, you know, reading outside of what the industry is to say, I've kind of won this competition or come runner up here or done this. And it just gives you a little kind of in where people go, okay, I'll check that out. Okay. And as, as, as a final question, uh, what are you working on now or what have you got coming up that you're, you're hoping to do? Uh, written a script which was a screencraft horrifying list called toxic which is 28 days later for the me too generation so it's basically uh, unpacking toxic masculinity through the thing of a zombie movie 
And that was actually um, was co-written with my wife, which um, was awesome. And again, that's another script which I don't want to direct because it should be have a female director on this female story, and it needs to be from their point of view. So basically, hopefully, with that now going out to female directors and producers to try and kind of find somebody that connect with that material. So just in the process of querying letters and that. Um, working on the Ninja movie, which I just talked about because I love the Ninja movies like American Ninja and all the Shokazuki movies from the 80s. I just want to do kind of like reinvention of like the 80s ninja subgenre action movie. And again, they're moving on to, there's a script I'm working on, which is kind of like a follow-up from Toxic, which is again dealing with toxic masculinity called Dead X, where kind of like it's a riff on a slasher movie but the thing about this is it's her dead ex who is the slasher that's killing off anybody that she tries to get close to. So it's basically kind of like this <laughs> relationship she's had where a person's dead and she can't get rid of the dead ex. So <laughs> that is kind of, it's, it's going to be a bit funny. Toxic's a bit heavy, heavier, yeah. more serious, but dead ex, dead ex is more kind of like, a light-hearted thing. And then the one movie that I want to direct and make is a film which I've tried, been pushing for the last five years and I want to do this film. It's called Lust. It's an STD with benefits movie where this uh, kid, teenager, you know, useless with women. He has a one-night stand with the most beautiful woman he's ever known. Following day, all the women are into him. Awesome, he thinks. But then he finds out that the girl he had sex with may not be from this planet and if he has sex, it's going to cause the... Uh, end of the world in an alien invasion so the whole movie is kind of like it's uh, a riff it's like this generation's weird science basically right and uh been doing that we've been i originally started developing that with the montecito pitch company which is ivan reitman's company and then uh xyz films who are independent they they're involved and we've had like bits of interest and finance and then it was with gunpowder and sky and it's kind of like shifted around and it's been close and it's had like Craig Roberts attached to it. It's had Jacob Batalon, who's in Spider-Man, attached as the best friend. So it's, and uh, Tony Revolori wanted to do it. So it's had all these amazing people kind of attached to it in one course, but it's never landed its kind of financing. So mm. that's the thing that I just keep pushing. So you just keep doing sizzle reels, keep doing your look bush, keep shifting stuff around, you keep putting it out there. So eventually someone will be like, yeah, I'm going to do that STD with benefits movie that Phil wants to do. It's going to be awesome. So anyone's out there that has like two million pounds, you're going to get an awesome movie. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Phil. And if anybody is listening that has money that wants to invest into one of those films, <laughs> then I will happily pass your details across to Phil so you can have a chat with him. So thank you very much, Phil. Very it's, much. it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you again, and we really shouldn't leave it quite so long next time because I dread to think what we're going to look like in another 20-odd years. It look awesome. You just got Botox or whatever. Botox. Yeah, continue with the <laughs> continue with the Botox. Thank you very much. Oh!